Hello, my name is Amina Dore, Public Education Coordinator at the Sexual Assault Support Center of Ottawa. You're listening to Voices Must Be Heard, a podcast centering and empowering the voices of young survivors of gender-based and sexual violence. This podcast sheds light on the firsthand experiences and accounts of survivors navigating their healing journey, discussing the realities of trauma, societal pressures, barriers, and challenges, and learning what healing and taking your power back can look like. We're honored and privileged to create a safe space for survivors to tell their story, and we hope this podcast can be a safe space for listeners as well. This podcast will be discussing topics around gender-based and sexual violence, trauma, and may depict graphic descriptions of said topics. If you're feeling overwhelmed or impacted by the stories shared, please call Sask Ottawa's 24-7 support line at 613-234-2266. If you're looking for information about our services, please visit our website, saskottawa.com forward slash services. To get real-time updates on our community services, follow us at at SaskOttawa or at Sask Young Women Program on all platforms. Links and descriptions of services will be provided in the show notes. Bronwyn, thank you for being here. And thank you for uh, taking the time out to talk about your story. I think this is going to be a really great opportunity for you, but also a an opportunity for healing for people who are listening. So yeah, today you said you wanted to talk about the understanding of shame and guilt and what that looks like in terms of your own personal experience. But um, before we go into that, I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm pretty good. Um, uh, I started a new job recently, so that's been fun. And I'm looking for a new apartment as well. So that's been... <laughs> that's big, big things. So Big things, Yeah. yeah. In a, in a good way as well. It's like new beginnings for you. and Yeah, totally. Okay. And yeah, again, thank you for, for coming here to, to talk about your story. And I wanted to ask, you know, why do you think this topic is important to young survivors, this idea of, of shame and guilt and what that looks like? I think this topic is important because I think there's a tendency for self-blame a lot and shame and guilt are kind of rooted in in that tendency. So I think it's it's really important, especially kind of at the beginning of like recovery, to identify those feelings and and work through them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good uh, way to understand like how what your relationship to that is, right? So I did want to talk about like what is your understanding of shame and guilt? What does that mean to you? I think shame is like the most useless emotion in the world. Feelings are kind of the purpose of them is like to give us information about, you know, our environment or um, things we've experienced. Uh, You know, if you're feeling anxiety, for example, that is your body telling you that there's a threat in your environment, real or imagined. And that's the purpose is to kind of assist you in how to act. But shame and guilt literally give us no information at all. It really is just this internal, like, self-blame. And, um, yeah, that that's my understanding of shame and guilt is just that they're just useless. So you think other emotions are designed to inform you, whereas shame and guilt, do you feel like it reinforces negative feelings? What is your, like, understanding of that cycle or that feeling of shame when it does come up? Yeah, definitely. It kind of tells us to to be hard on ourselves. And as we find things to be shameful about, then we feel 
shame for feeling shame. And it just is like a never ending loop of experiencing shame for things we've done, things we feel, and then feeling shameful about feeling shameful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a constant cycle and it, it doesn't like, as you feel more shame, it, it kind of gets you deeper in that hole. Is that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And in terms of your content, like your understanding of shame in relation to being a survivor, what, what did that look like to you when you, you know, experienced or went through your own experience rather? And, you know, that feeling of shame and guilt, where did that relationship with that shame and guilt come from? Like, where did it start? Yeah. I think the biggest piece is that I was assaulted when I was intoxicated and I had these big feelings of shame because I felt like I, I put myself in that situation. If I hadn't drank so much, if I hadn't agreed to go home with this guy, then it wouldn't have happened. So I think it, it really came from just blaming myself for the whole event. So that feeling of, of course, knowing intellectually it's not your fault, but having that feeling that um, uh, I feel like a lot of society reinforces as well. Do you feel like that's the case as well in terms of kind of societal messaging and narratives of what it means to be victimized and what it means to go through what you went through? Yeah, definitely. I think um, there's kind of a sense of responsibility on women for conducting themselves a certain way. And I suppose my behavior at that time didn't reflect what is expected of me. Hmm. And do you feel like that shame and guilt was kind of something that's conditioned from a wider aspect of society? Or do you feel like that was self-imposed? How was, when you went through your experience, what was the initial feelings that you had around it? Yeah, I think, I think kind of a combination. I definitely tend to be hard on myself, but that is something I think a lot of women experience. So I think there is that connection between the two of having this internal tendency to feel badly about ourselves. But I also think that that is connected to the way that women are conditioned. Again, just feeling like women have, there's this expectation of women to behave, to be responsible, to be, you know, the keeper of the people around them including themselves. And so not fitting into that expectation was a big part of it. Mm. So even before the experience, there was already that kind of what you would refer to as like gendered expectations, what it means to be a woman, what it means to carry yourself as a woman. And and if you're not following this kind of never ending script of what it means that you essentially are blamed for the things that have happened to you. Um, And you said um, that piece of, you already felt like you were hard on yourself. Do you feel, you said that was connected to the aspect of what it means to, to be a woman and and what are the expectations that you have? Yeah. As I was growing up, I don't think I really connected that, but definitely, you know, becoming an adult, transitioning from a girl to a woman, I think kind of made me more conscious of those kind of inner workings of society. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about, you know, the term of self-blame, what did that look like to you when you when you went through your experience and what was the 
the kind of words that you were using or the phrases that you were using around self-blame? What did that look like in your personal experience? A lot of shoulds, mm. a lot of shitting on myself. Mm, so shitting, yeah. Shitting on yourself. Yeah. 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 So you should have done this or you should have done that. Okay. Yeah, or should not have. Should not have. Okay. Yeah. All right. And do you want to talk about what were some of the things that you, if you feel comfortable, of course, talking about what are the, those expectations that you're putting on yourself? Yeah. Expectations of, you know, I, I should not have drank so much. I should not have even been speaking to this man. I should not have, I mean, there's a lot that I, I don't remember, of course, about, about it. And I think that that also plays into those shoulds. I should have remembered. I should have been conscious enough to remember it. I should have said no, those kinds of things. Yeah. And that, that feeling of, again, the expectation being on you and not on the perpetrator, not on the the person who caused the harm. And as you said, it's it's a wider societal narrative of what it means to be victimized or, or taken advantage of, or, and in the context of being a, a woman as well, what does that look like and how, unfortunately, you know, this victim blaming narrative, you know, as what were you wearing? What were you doing? Who are you hanging out with? This, this societal pressures become internalized. And, you know, when you talk about I should have, or I shouldn't have done that, how have you gotten to a point where you feel comfortable even talking about these things? Right. Cause I know that it's, as you said, it's a very internal. So how did you get to a point where you can separate, Hey, these are just messaging or feelings of shame and guilt and not how I feel or how I want to have that relationship to my story. Yeah, there was definitely a, a process but it kind of feels like at some point there was a flip that switched. As I said, I, I don't really remember a lot about it, but there was a moment that I did remember as I was letting him into my building, I tripped really badly. <laughs> I almost fell down, tripped. And he said, oh, you're so drunk, but he didn't actually finish the word. Like he trailed off when he said drunk. Like he, you know, like he caught himself. Like he was like, oh, nope, you can't say that. Don't say that. And for a long time, that phrase meant to me, you shouldn't have been so drunk. You shouldn't have whatever. But then I started looking at it as he knew what he was doing. He saw the state I was in and he took advantage of it and he did it on purpose. And that allowed you know, that outlook, those thoughts allowed me to switch those, those feelings of blame to feelings of anger of he did this to me. I didn't do it to myself. He's an asshole and it's his fault. And that really, that really was like a paradigm shift of blame for me. Mm -hmm. And how, how long did that take for you? Like, what was the process you said, you know, there was that internal shame, then there was that anger. It was kind of going through what I would refer to almost stages of grief, right? Going through those, you know, heavy emotions. When did, how did that process look like to you? Yeah, I, I was, I was stuck in denial for a long time. And then a friend of mine was assaulted in the same manner when she was, was very intoxicated. And seeing that happen to her kind of allowed me to understand the situation seeing it happen to somebody I loved kind of changed 
okay, if it's not okay for that to have happened to her, then it's not okay for that to have happened to me. And I think that that is something that I've kept with me. I kind of use it as an exercise sometimes. You know, if my friend was talking to herself this way, if somebody I loved was blaming themselves for something that happened to them, even things not related to me being a survivor, but just those, you know, everyday negative feelings, negative thought cycles. If my friend was saying this to herself, would I want her to feel that way? Would I want her to be saying those things to herself? So if I don't want a friend to be in that state, if I don't want somebody I love to be in that state, why should I accept and allow myself to be in that state? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a very um, introspective exercise, this idea of, you know, as you said, sometimes we're harder on ourselves than we are with a friend or a family or somebody who we we love and trust. We have an understanding of how they would want to be treated or how we would want to treat them. But sometimes it's hard to transfer to ourselves. And again, how did you get to that point? Because that's a very, you know, it's, it's a long process of going through that denial, that anger, that, you know, acceptance, and then coming to a place where you can take that love that you have for others and, and internalize it. How did that process go for you? Well, I think something that I, I didn't realize was so connected at the time until much later is uh, after I was assaulted, I developed an eating disorder, uh, which is apparently very common. Um, and I think that that really, really revolves around that shame and guilt piece and a big piece of unlearning all of those pieces of diet culture and again, expectations of women to look a certain way, to be a certain way was really at the heart of it was just acceptance. So I think that if I can accept other people, I can accept myself. And it took a lot of just reminders. Just any time I caught myself, you know, talking to myself negatively, either about my thoughts and feelings or about my body, reminding myself to accept myself as I am. So like affirmations, you Affirmations, say. yeah. Directly countering a lot of the negative messaging or programming or conditioning that, again, is it's outside of you. It's a, it's a societal pressure that, you know, women face or all marginalized genders face, right? And as you said, you started to notice the interlinks of everything, right? Not just in terms of your own body and your relationship to that, but your relationship to self-love versus love with others or how you, you know, navigate your own emotions. And again, how a lot of the things that you felt were actually not yours, right? Yeah. 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 And um, in terms of going, you know, back to that piece around shame, you know, because I've heard people talk about how shame, it's, it's hard to describe. It's very intangible. Sometimes you can feel it in your body. You can feel it in, in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, what is your relationship to that shame? Like when you, cause you know that of course your experience is, is subjective, but there's a lot of survivors who can say that, Hey, shame and guilt is a very common experience. So in terms of your relationship to shame, what does that look like to you? It looks like a lot of just wanting to hide. It looks like a lot of isolating myself. And physically, I really feel it in my stomach. 
I I feel almost sick to my stomach. Just that, you know, sinking feeling, but constant. Mm-hmm. And when do you feel that? Is it like you, of course, you said in the initial stages of when you experience your assault, but how has it come up for you now that you've processed certain aspects? How do you um, interrogate shame and, and how do you how do you face it? I find when I get stuck in certain thought patterns or if I'm, you know, watching a movie or a TV show and there's like a comment about something related, that kind of thing, that's when it it tends to come up. And I think a big piece of it is the kind of meta cognition of I am thinking this, I am noticing myself thinking this, I am noticing myself noticing that I'm thinking this and kind of all of those degrees of separation help me to process it and um, get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So like the hyper awareness that you have of every stage that you're going through. Yeah. Um, But sometimes that could be even overwhelming. Right. And, and how do you navigate that level of, again, it seems like you're very emotionally intelligent you have like a very, um, clear understanding of oneself, but in talking about that feeling of, you know, all the layers and the levels, how do you navigate that without feeling overwhelmed or even when you do feel overwhelmed, how do you navigate that piece? Uh, Well, the first thing is years of therapy. (laughs) Um, And then just practice, just practicing all the time. And again, acceptance, because when you first start practicing is overwhelming even just just attempting to put these these things into practice but just accepting if you're noticing yourself being overwhelmed just accepting that and knowing that it's it's not a bad thing mm-hmm. yeah and i've heard of it as like riding the wave like yeah. when the wave comes, you just let it kind of crash over you and know that you're going to see the other side of it. Mm-hmm. And talking about going back to that piece you said about triggers, you know, when things come up, when you watch something, when you hear something, what does that look like to you? If you feel comfortable talking about like, what are the, some of the triggers that get you to that place of confronting things like shame and guilt? Triggers can sometimes be a feeling. If I'm feeling anxiety Sometimes that is a trigger just in and of itself. I'll feel anxious about something completely different. And then suddenly I'm thinking about, you know, I'm getting flashbacks and I'm thinking about the assault. Sometimes it's a certain feeling physically. If I have, I I know a common one is like feeling like something's in your mouth. That's a big one for me. If I feel something kind of at the back of my throat or like I said before, seeing things in media Sometimes even just a sex scene is like too much for me. And I think a lot of that goes to, again, expectations, societal expectations in the media of sex and in in social media too. I think it's a very modern norm that's come up, but the distinguish the difference between like vanilla sex and good sex. Like there seems to be this idea that good sex has to involve violence. And that is something that's so, so often perpetuated in social media, in television and film. 
And so seeing those things as well, even just seeing people mention it can be a trigger for me as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like there's, you know, you said there's the body sensations, things that are not related to something visual, but then there are things that are visual, whether it's media, the expectations of, of women or, you know, all folks who are marginalized. And again, this idea of what it means to engage with sex or sexuality and how that is counterintuitive to the needs of, of people who have survived assault. And I'm um, even going through that piece of the idea of, of sexual assault being about sexual desire when it's really about power and control, right? It's just a vehicle in which somebody enforces, as you said, with the perpetrator that, you know, he knew, he knew what he was doing. He was taking advantage of, of somebody in the moment. So even that conflation of sexual desire with the idea of sexual assault, which is power and control, right? But yeah, t- talk more about that. I- I'm interested to know about like, what is your relationship to media when you see something like that and you feel triggered? What are the ways in which you navigate that trigger? Because I know sometimes it when it comes up, it's very hard to pinpoint and say, hey, I'm triggered right now. So how do you navigate those emotions when you they are coming up in real time? A big piece, I think, is planning. And planning allows you to identify those feelings of being triggered before or after the fact, which makes it easier to recognize. And then planning also allows you to come up with a plan on how to handle those feelings, how to reduce those feelings and get grounded. And what does that plan look like to you when you are, let's say you experience something that you're watching a TV show or a movie and something comes up that really causes you that distress or or makes you feel triggered? What are the ways in which you do wind down? Do you call a friend? Do you take some time to yourself? Do you journal? Like, What are some of the pieces that you think are very helpful for you when you are trying to de-stress or trying to navigate a trigger? It really depends on the type of trigger. So like I said, if the trigger is the physical, if I'm feeling something in my mouth, I try to change that sensation. So oftentimes that looks like drinking water or eating something. Or if it's physical, like some somewhere else on my body rather, again, changing the sensation, maybe scratching instead of feeling just pressure or finding something else like a a feather and kind of dragging that across my skin, just trying to change sensations. Um, If it's visual, um, an exercise I really like is instead of trying to get rid of it and just wish it away, which can often make it worse, I try to like manipulate the image. Oftentimes I'll see a, a picture in my mind's eye. And I will try to shrink the image, make it bigger, maybe rotate it or try to change it to black and white, those kinds of things. And what that does is allows you to distance yourself from it so it doesn't feel so daunting and scary. And then maybe five, maybe 10 minutes later, you realize that you're just kind of looking at a picture and thinking about it and you're not so caught up in all those feelings. Because it it distances yourself and it gives you something to focus on, which is really grounding. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. The the piece of 
I've heard it called like opposite action, right? Like if you're feeling one sensation, you do something else to kind of cancel it out, or at least to get your mind focused on the, the other piece. But that aspect of almost zooming out to a degree where you're just looking at the components of the image and not necessarily the relationship you have to that image or the emotion that you're experiencing with that image. That's a very, like I said, introspective way and, and uh, to look at it. And I'm sure it, it takes a lot of practice though, right? Um, and through that, how do you navigate those feelings of, hey, you know, it, it didn't work this time or, you know, I'm feeling this again or um, sometimes that people refer to it as like kind of falling off the horse and, and getting back on. How do you navigate those pieces? Because as we talk about healing is a very, it's not a linear journey, right? It's not as I went through something, I'm getting the help that I need or getting support and I move forward. Oftentimes we take a couple steps forward and a couple steps back. So when you're navigating that lack of linear healing, what what does, how do you navigate those emotions? Acceptance. Knowing, because half the battle can be, oh, why isn't this working? It worked last time. Why can't I get these feelings out of my out of me? Why can't I get these thoughts out of my head? And that can sometimes be half the battle. That makes it so much worse when you get hard on yourself about it. Instead of bullying myself about it, I can say, okay, that didn't work. Let's flip through our planner. Let's flip through our recovery work workbook or the notes I've made with my therapist and find something else and try it and just kind of persevering and figuring it out by trial and error and accepting that sometimes things aren't going to work. And sometimes I'll even find that I need a combination of things. You know, once I try, once I'm on my third exercise is when I start to feel like I'm calming down. And maybe that has to do just with time that passed. But even so, now I'm feeling better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that piece of the resilience that you have is a very important aspect, right? Talking about there's many different phases or stages that you'll go through and what may be served you at one point may not serve you later, or it could be that you need another layer of, of support or another layer of help that may help you go through that process. And the key piece that I see here is like the compassion that you have for yourself, right? That you know that it's not going to be an easy journey or it's, it's something that you're going to have to have some resilience through and the patience that you have for yourself through those tough moments or through the moments that a lot of people have, again, as you said, that kind of tape of self-blame or that feeling of, of shame on top of, of the guilt and all of that. Right. And, and you said it was a process for you to get there. If you feel comfortable, what were some of the pieces where you felt like it was harder than it it could be? Or like, what were some of the experiences that you had where you can say, Hey, that was a very hard emotion to navigate, or I didn't know if I was going to be able to navigate that emotion. Yeah. Talk more about like some of those pieces of like, cause I know there's people who are listening who may be in that point right now, right. Listening and saying, Hey, I'm looking for something that people can reflect my emotions. Right. And yeah. Talk about some of those kinds of ebbs and flows that you've experienced. I think a really big part is even stress that's not related. If there are 
big things happening with my family that are really stressful. If I haven't eaten, if I didn't sleep well, which of course, all of those things are related to post-trauma stress. You can't sleep. You can't eat properly. And sometimes what you have to do is just sit and wait. The only thing that can get you through it is knowing that you felt this way before and it ended. And it might take some time. It might take a few hours. It might take a few days. But that emotion will at some point stop. And sometimes that's the only thing that can keep you going. Yeah. You know, what you described is something that is both complicated and simple at the same time, right? A lot of the things that you described, hey, just ride the wave, feel it, um, accept it, acknowledge that you have a reference point that you have have overcome these emotions before. A lot of it is very clear, but in the moment when you are in that emotion, sometimes it is all consuming, right? It's very hard to see what was in the past or what's in the future when you're stuck in a present moment of maybe panic or, um, or anxiety or, or what have you. But again, it seems like you have a lot of compassion for yourself and a lot of understanding of, of your own emotional process. But what would you want to say to people who are listening and, and who have, are in that state or don't feel that way, or maybe they understand that they could get there, but it feels too far away? What, what would you say to those folks? I would say that it is possible because I know when I was there, I didn't feel like I ever could get to a point where I did feel that compassion for myself. But I think it's important to know when it is this, this big daunting hill to climb that you, you don't think you can get to the top, that you can. It can happen. Yeah. And um, I did want to maybe go a little bit back to what you were talking about, how you, you said you ha you've had friends who've experienced similar things. And do you feel like you felt community or you were able to cultivate community with people who've also experienced similar things as you? Not at the time. Um, that friend and I actually don't speak anymore. And I think that that goes to show how life-changing and how brutal post-trauma stress can be that when both of you kind of are in in the depths of it there is no connection that being said in the future I have created a lot of community with people who have experienced it but it is kind of more of an after the fact not a immediately following because immediately following those relationships can actually be kind of dangerous because there might be a subconscious trigger of those feelings and even just being around that person can cause those nagging feelings in the back of your head or in the back of your mind and that can trigger those those emotions of anxiety and fear, which can be detrimental to a connection with someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that goes to show as well how subjective 
the experiences. You know, many people can go through something similar and you can create community around the understanding of healing and moving forward. But ultimately it is also a personal journey, you know, when it, and again, two people can go through something similar and have a very different relationship to it. And yeah, and talking about how you were able to get to that point of feeling connected to yourself enough to connect with others. I'm interested to know, you know, when you go through assault or any kind of trauma, right? That that feeling of disconnection from the self, like how did you get to the point of reconnecting with yourself and getting the ability to want to cultivate community after the fact? Well, like I mentioned, I, I developed an eating disorder and a big part of feeling so disconnected was a combination of feeling disconnected because of the trauma, but also feeling disconnected because I had no energy because I wasn't eating. And it's interesting because that compassion piece kind of went into both. And a big piece of it actually was feminism because I chose to go down the route in my ED recovery of learning how these expectations on women have fueled diet culture and have fueled eating disorders in women for decades. And that shifted the blame from me to this large, confusing, interconnected kind of abstract concept of society. And so I think it was getting angry about that. It was shifting blame from me and getting angry about these feelings, these expectations, these thoughts that I have reflected from the messaging I've received since I was a small child. And then being able to translate that to shifting the blame from shifting the blame about my assault from me as well. So you, you saw how your experiencing your experience with an eating disorder was triggered by your um, experience of assault, but then you were able to make that connection of how the expectations of society also transfers to your experience of assault as well as your own personal relationship to your body. Yeah. And that's a very, like I said, introspective way to look at your, your own experience and how, um, as I say, like the personal is political, right? That it's not always just isolated within yourself, that there are wider systems at play that do enable and condition us to believe that a lot of this, the, this behavior is normalized, right? Or as you said, it got to a point where you became conscious of how much society has a role to play and even your own personal relationship to your body, your own understanding of your assault. And when you got to that phase of anger, because I'm really interested to talk about that too. I think a lot of people have a very, you know, it's a subjective experience with with anger, but particularly with women, as you said, right? It's sometimes it's society shames us for our anger or makes us feel like, it's misplaced or there's an idea of women shouldn't get angry or what is your relationship to at least initially when you started feeling that anger of shifting that blame up to now, like what is your understanding of your relationship to anger and how that could be healthy and healing in some ways, right? Yeah, I think 
I realized that men often the only emotion that men are comfortable with is anger. The only emotion that men can experience, can show is anger. And if it's okay for men to be angry, why isn't it okay for women to be angry? Especially about injustice or inequality. Just in terms of like your relationship to anger as it as it started and up till now, like what is your understanding of how you process your own anger? What is your just relationship to it? Knowing that emotions in general are just a part of life. And I think that goes back to the piece about when you are in in the depths of of post-trauma, of sadness, of blaming yourself and, and not being able to get out of it, knowing that these emotions are just something that you are going to experience, that everybody experiences, that it's normal and that it's okay to feel things, accepting how you're feeling, and recognizing that anger is one of those emotions that it's okay for you to experience. In terms of working through anger, recognizing that there's a difference between feeling anger safely and feeling anger that leads to violence. I think as long as I am feeling anger that is safe, I can feel it until it dissipates. Mm. And tell me more about that. Like what does safe anger look like to you? What is what are some of the practices, if you have any practices in place around processing it, but what is the distinction that you make between safe anger, healthy anger versus that kind of unproductive or destructive even anger? Safe anger is motivating. Safe anger is me alone. Safe anger is not yelling at my loved ones, is not snapping at my loved ones, which is something I'm still navigating. I do find sometimes that in times of stress, stress often equates to anger for me. And it's tricky to navigate accepting what I'm feeling and keeping my behavior in check. You know, it's kind of walking the middle path there of accepting how I'm feeling, but also knowing that there are certain things that it's it's not okay to certain ways of expressing anger that it's that are not okay and really trying to be in the middle of it and making sure that in those feelings I still am doing my best. Mm, yeah. And you said about like there's the feeling versus the action. Can you talk about some experiences that you have with when you are acting in ways that don't coincide with the ways that you want to process the emotion? Because I know it's, a, again, there could be people listening who, you know, have anger, but it's a lot of internal. And when you talked about destructive anger, sometimes it doesn't have to be towards others. Sometimes it's towards ourselves, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, I wanted to know about that internal piece as well. Like how do you, are there any examples that you have of processing that internal anger? And what are some words that you can you know, tell people listening about how to process that or what has helped you in the past? Yeah, I struggle a lot with um, harming myself 
mentally and and physically. I do or have in the past engaged in self-harm. And part of processing the anger that I feel internally was harming myself to deal with it, to get rid of it. I would harm myself and there would be this kind of rush of relief. But now or after I had to figure out how to get that relief without hurting myself. And that looks like for me working through. And what I mean by working through is following the thoughts, kind of trying to get deeper and deeper. Okay, I'm feeling anger. What am I feeling anger about? Why am I feeling anger about that? And often boundaries and compassion go into processing that. And once I'm at the end and I say to myself, okay, how do I, how do I prevent this violation? And how do I approach this with compassion, either for others or for myself or for the situation? Mm-hmm. And that can often lead to uh, feeling some kind of relief about it. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting that you said, how do I process this emotion without harming myself, as opposed to how do I get rid of this emotion? Because mm-hmm. I think that's where the the, the the distinction lies where when you're trying to suppress or get rid of or run away from, as opposed to confront it in a healthy way. And even the way that you describe emotions is very interesting to me. The way you said it, you generally have like a neutral way to look at it. Anger is just an emotion. And when it comes, what, how do I serve it? How do I recognize it? How do I analyze it? As opposed to, I am angry. I am this, right? I think that's a, you know, a thing that a lot of people's who've experienced trauma, um, struggle with that this emotion's happening that's independent of me, whereas sometimes it becomes you, right? Or consumes you. How did you get to that point where you're able to see emotions as just, again, signals, information, tools, as opposed to who you are and, and, and identifying or overly identifying rather with those emotions? Dialectical behavioral therapy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> DBT. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the core of DBT is looking at situations and yourself and feelings and knowing that more than one thing can be true at the same time. So knowing that in this context, I am experiencing anger. I am still a person. I am still a person that is worthy of caring for myself, that is worthy of existing outside of however I'm feeling at the time. That emotions are a part of life and emotions can give us information. And the battle is getting that information. And once you have that information, understanding it, and that can make those feelings a little bit distant. Okay. And through that, it seems like you've, you've developed a sense of like agency and power over your own relationship to emotions and how you navigate that in a way that's healthy for you. And yeah, how you've described that you are who you are. You still love yourself. You still care for yourself. You, you, you don't see the emotions as defining you in mm-hmm. any way. 
But yeah, how did you get to that point? You know, there are people, like I said, who are listening, who are still in the place where they're not ready to let go of that feeling or Mm -hmm. they're not ready to move through it or they still identify with it. It's, It's very hard for them to see themselves separate from the shame, the guilt, the anger, the blame, you know, how did you, um, what would you like to say rather to people who are listening around navigating that piece? As much as it is separate from you, it is still a part of you. And if certain parts of yourself deserve love and compassion and care, then so does that part of yourself, the parts of yourself that you don't like. And consistently applying that compassion is what's important. So seeing it as a total package of yourself, not just pieces of, oh, well, I don't want to be angry. That's not something I want to identify with. You say, well, anger is also in the room with us, Mm -hmm. right? Like all of it is, they're invited to the party. Every single emotion is invited. It's just a matter of tending to those emotions when they come And in a way that is not detrimental to your just everyday healing. And, um, you know, when you did talk about, um, I also want to go back to that piece because I feel like there's so many great things you're saying right now. I'm like trying to pick and choose, but that piece of how you said sometimes things that are even independent from your experience of trauma can inform how a trigger will come up or how an emotion will come up. You talked a lot about like kind of like the basics of self-care. What does that even what does that term even feel like to you? And what does self-care look like to you in a way where when you are feeling those heightened emotions that you're able to tend to them in a way that makes sense for you? I look at self-care as synonymous with self-validation. So taking care of myself means to me validating myself, validating my thoughts, validating my feelings, but also the kind of advice piece. And it goes back to if a friend was saying to me these things that I'm saying to myself, what would I say to them? How would I validate their feelings and attempt to assist them through how to act from here? So even befriending yourself. Yeah. You're your own best friend, I guess, is is that is what you would advise people, you know, to not reject those mm-hmm. parts of you, not to shame or shun those parts of you, but to invite it in and again treat it as you would a friend or somebody who you are very close with. But why do you think that it's very hard for people to, you know, let's say if a friend came to them and said, Hey, this has happened to me, and they're able to comfort and console and give words of affirmations, why do you think it's very hard for people to turn that inward? What is and what was that turning point for you where you were able to kind of believe the words and and take them in and actually accept them. I think it's human nature to be critical of yourself because that is something that I and probably you hear so often mm-hmm. is that people say I'm I'm my own worst critic. I am my own bully. I really just think it's just an ism of the human experience, Mm -hmm. a very unfortunate one, but a lot of the isms of human experiences Mm -hmm. are unfortunate. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's almost hard to identify what the turning point was. I think if you have 
a certain thought and you think it enough times, you say it to yourself enough times, then that allows pathways in your brain to form that become very easy to fire. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to think about it. You don't have to do it consciously. If you say it enough times, you eventually start to say, oh yeah, there's, I guess there's some merit to that. And that allows you to approach life with that belief and not have to try so hard to believe it. And would you say it's similar on the opposite end when negative thoughts do reoccur or it's kind of like a, a, a tape that keeps on playing in your head? Um, do you feel like the same kind of pathway happens with that as well? Definitely. Yeah. I think that's how it, it all starts. Yeah, very philosophical you're getting, you know, <laughs> I think therefore I am, right? That's yeah. a really how, how it happens, right? And yeah, w- the, the piece around, you know, navigating those kinds of growing pains of this doesn't feel natural. I'm saying all these affirmations, but it doesn't, it's not hitting, you know, it's not, it's not getting to the, to the core, but you said that there was a time where it just kind of gradually started feeling once you started repeating it, it started kind of again, creating those pathways in your head and you started to believe it and you started to, to, to feel it, but there's a patience that comes with that. Right. And so, yeah, to, to, to the folks who are listening, you know, um, how would you describe the patient's piece, you know, cause again, compassion is part of that patience. You're kind of suffering with, you know, you're kind of getting through the emotion. Um, but yeah, in terms of being patient with yourself, what does that look like when you are in a, either a, a low point or you are in a place where it's harder today than it was yesterday? How do, what is your relationship to patience and, and how do you navigate that? I think that's the perfect way to put it, growing pains. And similarly, with growing pains, these feelings and this process is something that you will get through. It will become easier. And acknowledging that is something that assists with patience. Knowing it is coming. It will arrive. And not even necessarily completely arrive. You know, there's you talk a lot about, you know, a healing journey. Mm-hmm. It's not about the destination because you may never completely arrive to healed. There will probably not be a moment where, okay, I'm done. I'm good mm-hmm. now. And oddly, that is comforting. Mm. And that assists with patience. Because you're not waiting for something. You're not feeling like you're waiting for something that can keep you in the moment. And I think that's what patience is, is staying in the moment. So uh, being present in yourself. Yeah. Yeah, And and that's interesting as well, like this misconception of healing, right? Even the term healing, it's a verb, it's an action, it's a continual thing uh, versus healed as in like a destination that you reach or a point that you reach where you'll never feel a trigger. You'll never feel, can you talk about that? Like what are some of the kind of misconceptions you had to even dispel within yourself around healing and, and going through that process? I think I have distinct memories of the first time I tried an exercise and it worked. 
I was like, oh, great. I figured it out. And then I realized, you know, maybe the next time it did work. But then the time after that, I had to work a lot harder. And that bummed me out. And then it kept happening. I kept having those experiences of, oh, this exercise worked, you know, last week. This exercise worked yesterday. What is going on? And then in the same way that I realized, oh, that one exercise that worked the day before didn't work today, maybe it worked two days later. That realization helped me to know that just because it didn't work one time doesn't mean it won't work again in the same way that just because it worked that one time doesn't mean it'll work every time. Mm -hmm. That it's about just trying, just Mm -hmm. showing up for yourself consistently. And sometimes that means lying in a ball on your bed and crying for an hour. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, again, you said a lot of really great things that I want to kind of piece apart, but that piece of every coping skill that has to be super productive, right? Oh, I have to be in the gym. I have to eat healthy. I have to do, sometimes it's, I just want to sit down and, you know, watch a show where I want to cry in my bed, right? So even this idea of like detaching from what is healing, right? This I, This rigid idea of what it looks like to heal, but also that piece of the utility of healing. It seems very interesting how you described it as almost like a toolkit, right? Like just because I need a screwdriver for this, that doesn't mean I'm going to dispose of my hammer, mm-hmm. right? I may need to use that hammer later, or maybe I need to use a different kind of screwdriver. It might mean, I'm, use, I'm using this uh, toolbox analogy to the best of my ability right now, but seeing it as like, okay, these are tools that I can use at a time that makes sense for it. That doesn't mean that they're not useful ever. So again, that's a very insightful way to to look at um, emotions or coping and that everything as well, not only the emotions are invited to the room, but all the coping skills that are necessary. But I'm interested to to hear about like when you said there are obviously coping skills that were negative and that were, you know, self-harming or, or what have you. And um, how did you get to a point where there are certain coping skills that again, didn't serve you anymore, where you said, hey, I don't as what you said, it was more so I want to cope in a way where I'm not harming myself. Tell me about like that, that aspect of how you were able to transition between certain coping skills that were harmful and and negative to more positive or more healthy coping mechanisms. I think a, a big part of it was asking myself whether that particular action was helping even just at all. Is this Number one, helping me. Number two, is this aligning with my values? Is this who I want to be? And that allowed me to kind of narrow it down. Yeah, I'm interested to to hear about that aspect of what you talked about, your values. So a lot of the things that you do engage in or whether it's coping skills or what have you are directly, as you said, tied to what you value. I'm interested to know what you do value and how that informs your perspective and how it informs your relationship to your experience of trauma, but also how you navigate to your emotions. Figuring out what I value is as much 
asking myself what I value, but also asking myself what I want to value. So before I did look at myself as this worthy being that deserves compassion and care, I I didn't value myself. I didn't value my body. I didn't value my well-being. And then I started to try to figure out what I want to value. Do I want to value my body? Yes, I want to value my body. I want to value my health. I want to value my mind. How can I do that? By that self-care, that compassion for myself. And what I value now is myself. I think I'm a great person. A year ago, I would have said, I think I'm a pile of dirt that should be hiding in a closet somewhere because I don't believe that the world should be subjected to how shitty I am. And yeah, now I value my body. I value justice. I value people. I think I think every person is it maybe a, mm-hmm. a an exception or two. Yeah. <laughs> an I think every every person is valuable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's such a radical transformation that you you did make, and you are showing right now how it is possible yeah. that somebody could be at a stage where you were last year listening to this and feeling very isolated or very alone and very yeah just isolated and in their own that kind of loop that you talked about and that it is, there is a point where you can look at yourself a year from now and say, Hey, you know, I've, I've made a lot of strides and I'm, I'm in a place where I value myself. And most importantly, I value others. And, um, you know, the fact that you do have the strength to even talk about what you've experienced, but also give back, you know, in, in this, in this podcast and having people listen to you and identify with a lot of the things that you just talked about. Um, but you are an example of what it looks like to heal, you know, in real time. And yeah, I just wanted to thank you so much for, for being here today, Bronwyn. And I'm sure you have a very, like I said, very emotionally intelligent, insightful, and I have no doubt that you're just going to be upwards and onwards. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices Must Be Heard. This podcast is funded by the TELUS Friendly Future Foundation. The TELUS Friendly Future Foundation is a registered charity committed to youth with 100% of the proceeds directly funding Canadian charities. We'd like to thank TELUS for providing us with the opportunity to center young survivors throughout this podcast. We'd also like to thank Pop-Up Podcasting for editing a production and the Sexual Assault Support Centre of Ottawa Team and Young Women Program. We'd also like to thank all of the numerous survivors who were brave enough to share their stories throughout this project. For more information about Sask Ottawa services, including our Young Women program, visit our website at saskottawa.com forward slash services or follow us on all platforms at Sask Ottawa or at Sask Ottawa Young Women program. All links and descriptions are provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening.